Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, Revelation 4 and 5. So last week we finished Revelation chapter 3, which was the letters to the churches. There were encouraging letters to some of the churches. There were convicting words to some of the other churches. But as we get into chapter 4 and 5, we discover that words are not the only thing that Jesus has for John. So what we're seeing here is a pivot starting in chapter 4. And we discussed this on the first week of the message series. Revelation is multiple genres all wrapped up in one book. It's letters, it's poetry, it's prophecy, it's apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic doesn't mean end times. Apocalyptic means revelatory or revealing, making clear or known things that were previously mysterious or hard to understand or unclear. Now, we're going to get revelation about things that are going to transpire at the end of the age, but apocalyptic doesn't mean end times. So what we're about to see today in chapter four is this transition from the letters in one through three, letters to churches that were living at the time, but as we talked about, also are applicable to us today to the introduction of a vision that Jesus gives to John about things that will start transpiring within the time frame of the church all the way towards the end of time. And it starts with this really magnificent throne room scene. And that's what we're gonna see in chapter four. And so what I want us to understand as we read four and five is I want us to see this chapter as kind of the culmination of what apocalyptic literature is. It's a, it's a reveal, a, a look behind the curtain. It's a pulling back on, on, on what you see. And these two chapters are crucial to get your hands on before we get into six uh, through the rest of the book because John's experience in this throne room informs everything else he sees after this time. Now it's important to kind of understand what John's about to experience, he's not literally going into heaven. He's not literally seeing heaven. This is a vision of heaven. So that means the things that he sees, these aren't literal things in heaven. They can be connected to literal things in heaven, but they are metaphors or pictures. Um, It's poetry. It's prophecy. It's words representing even larger concepts. And we know this because in this chapter today, we're going to see this lamb that was slain, and we're going to discover that this is Jesus. Jesus isn't literally a lamb, and the lamb doesn't literally have ten horn, or seven horns and seven eyes. This is a picture, right? Satan isn't literally a dragon, but the best way to understand him is the picture that Jesus gives John as a dragon. Are you following with me? And so when we start coming across the 24 elders and these creatures, I don't want you to think like, oh, oh, he's literally seeing these. He's got these wild things up in there. There are literal creatures. There are these things in heaven, but they may not necessarily look like this because every time we see them throughout the Bible, they look a little bit different. But what we're seeing is John's vision 
that informs and opens our eyes. It reveals things and gives us language to talk and understand bigger concepts. It's essentially Jesus saying, John, I know that you watch the news and you go to church every week and you're up on the times and you feel informed, but come up here with me and I wanna show you your world from my perspective. You follow? Because the events of earth look one way from earth, but they look very different from heaven. And so the invitation to John and the invitation to us today is come up here and take a look at things from my perspective and everything that you see around you will start making more sense. Are you interested in that? I hope so, because things around us don't make much sense. Let's get to Revelation chapter four. We're gonna start in verse one. Now last week I read big chunks of the letter and then we summarized, but I feel like the best way to address prophecy is similar to how we did um, our Isaiah study where we read a little bit and then talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read and then pause more often um, than I did the previous three weeks. So let's go into Revelation chapter four and let's start understanding what happens to John after he gets the letters to write to the churches. So chapter four, verse one starts like this. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. So he's talking about the voice he heard in Revelation chapter one. This same voice said to him, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now pause right there. This vision that John sees starts with the phrase, after this I looked. Now you're gonna see that phrase, or then I saw, multiple times as we start going through this book. Those words do not correlate to a chronological order to the, the order of things that are going to happen in the visions as John is communicated, as Jesus communicates those to John. It is simply an indication in the Greek of the order at which John was given the visions. That's important. What we're about to read through is not a straight chronological order. This happens and then this happens and then this is gonna happen on earth and this is gonna happen. There is some sense of order chronologically, but these indication cues do not cue us in that from, from the beginning of Revelation to the end, we just read it chronologically that all these things are gonna happen sequential one after the other. The reason why is because we're gonna have these interludes. This book is written very similar. It, it's, it's, in, it's written in the same spirit or it's got the same roots uh, as Old Testament prophecy. And if you studied Isaiah with us last fall, one of the things that you learned was that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these prophets have this sense of zooming in on something and then going wide and then zooming in and then going wide. And in the middle of this zooming and going wide and these prophecies, there's a hard stop and all of a sudden there's this, uh, these oracles against the nations. So God says this, this, this against this specific nation and then all of a sudden this oracle starts overflowing into the things that God's gonna do in redemptive history. And before you know it, is Isaiah is talking about the end of time while he's addressing um, Egypt uh, in like 500 BC. 
And so the way that prophecy works in the Old Testament, and John is drawing from that, data, that, that database, as we've talked about, is that the way that you read this stuff is to just let it speak for itself. And to understand that the genre itself does not lend itself to reading a history book. Now, if you want to read things chronologically, go read Kings, go read Judges. That stuff is written in chronological order, but you can't read Ezekiel in chronological order. You can't read Isaiah in chronological order. It jumps back and forth. The end of the book is referencing things at the beginning of the book. The beginning of the book is referencing things that are going to happen 10,000 years in the future. And uh, Revelation is written in the same way. And this is important for us to understand because these cues are gonna happen regularly and for us to understand what's happening in the book, we need to take the cues as they are. He's simply saying, after those letters that Jesus just gave me, then I looked and I saw this new thing. And then I saw this next thing. It doesn't necessarily mean this next thing's gonna happen next, it just means this is what Jesus showed me next. Are you following? Okay. So he says in verse one and two, that I looked and I saw this open door in heaven. So this invitation from this man who says, come up here, it's the same man speaking like a trumpet from Revelation one, and we know that was Jesus because of the imagery that we're, seeing, we're, we're told when John turns around and looks. The imagery, seen, the imagery we see is the same as from Daniel chapter seven, it, 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 Daniel chapter 12, it's Jesus, it's the son of man. And now he's got um, uh, Yahweh attributes. Before it was the Ancient of Days with white hair. Now he's got this white hair. John is communicating that Jesus is divine. He is part of the Trinity. He is God. And he turns and he hears Jesus say, okay, I, I want you to come up here and I want you to see things from my perspective. Come up here and let me show you. I want to give you heaven's perspective on things. Now let's look at the first thing that John sees as he enters the, heaven, the, 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 reven, the, the realm of heaven. The first vision, the, the first part of the vision that he sees as he enters through this door is he sees a throne room. Now throne rooms are important because throne rooms are, centrals of, are centers of power. They're where the king sits, they're where decisions are made. And the first thing Jesus wants John to see when he comes up and sees this vision is that over all of the earth, over all of the galaxy, over all space, over all time, over all human history, over everything that we know, there is one center of power. There is one throne room that, that is over and trumps and is greater than and holds more authority than any White House room, uh, any room of parliament, uh, uh, any backroom deals that are taking place that we don't know about. There is no center of power that holds more power and authority than the throne room center of power. Are you following me? This is really important because in this room, decisions about history and earth are going to be made. And that's crucial because we are convinced that decisions about our history and our future and the way things are gonna, they're made outside of our hands. They're made in some room somewhere. They're, they're made by some politician. They're made by, in some backroom deal with, with people that have the most amount of money. Our future is in the hands of some people that we don't know and we can't control. That isn't true. The Bible teaches a different story. The Bible is clear from the very first thing that John sees 
that there is a center of power that rules over all earth and eternity, and it isn't located on earth. And there's no humans there. There's no, there's no fallen human beings manipulating this throne in order to get their way and keep their thumb on you. Are you following where I'm going with this? Okay, this eliminates all victim mentality. This removes from us all fear because we are told that now that John enters into this throne room, he sees that there is an authority over all things. If you are in Christ, you are directly connected and adopted into this family that oversees and rules all things. That's how connected you are. You are not disconnected. You are not left out. You are not marginalized. You are not forgotten. You are you are a daughter or a son of the king. That's what we're talking about. You are not left out. You weren't born into something that you can't get over. You weren't born into the wrong point in history. You don't lack any authority or power. You have connections to the central throne room that rules all things. That's the first thing he sees in the first two verses. But there's not, that's not all. Let's keep going. Verse 3. So he sees this throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24, el excuse me, were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, and they were clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their head. All right, let's pause there. The next thing that John sees as he enters into this throne room is there's color, there's brilliance, there's a rainbow, and there's 24 elders. Now let's break down this imagery because this imagery uh, has been adopted in different ways by people around us. And when we see these things, we're kind of confused about what this looks like. A rainbow, imagery-wise, in 2022, does not mean the same thing that a rainbow meant to John in the first century of the church. So when he sees this, he doesn't, he's not immediately uh, uh, connecting the same symbolisms that we have, so you have to let the Bible speak for itself, okay? What John is seeing with this rainbow imagery is the same imagery that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 1.28 when he was also caught up in the throne room. And so what John is doing is he's pulling from this database and he's saying, I saw this thing that looked like a rainbow. And he's referencing from this database that Ezekiel also saw the same thing. So what John is about to communicate is that what I saw is the same kind of things that Ezekiel saw. So that's a cue for us. When you start seeing imagery being pulled from the database, you need to make a note in your Bible, go back and read that reference. Go back in and read Ezekiel chapter one because those cues are borrowed and they're reinforced and Jesus is giving John those cues so that John will make those connections in his own heart and for the readers. He's saying that this is a throne room that hasn't just existed, it didn't just pop up, it existed all the way back to the time of Ezekiel. 
the time of the exile. This is the same God, the same throne, the same throne room. But he's also referencing Daniel 7, 9. When we're told that Daniel, when he was caught up in a vision, he saw the ancient days come into a throne room, take his seat, and he describes thrones all around the throne. So what he's saying is, John, I'm seeing the same thing that my ancestors of faith saw. I'm being caught up in this vision and I'm seeing thrones, but I don't just see, I don't know how many thrones, I see a very specific number of thrones. I see 24 thrones. Daniel saw a lot of thrones, he doesn't tell us how many, but John tells us how many. He says, I see 24 thrones. Now what is the symbol of those thrones? Now I told you this is a vision, it's symbolic. So these are probably not literal human beings who have died and have been appointed to some exalted status. Some commentaries say, well, these are the representatives from the tribes of Israel, these are the apostles. The only problem with that is John is an apostle and he hasn't died yet, but someone's sitting in a seat. So these aren't the literal guys. These are symbols of the fullness of God's family. There's 24 because you did have God cutting a covenant with the nation Israel that was made up of 12 tribes and you did have the church birthed out of 12 apostles who then after Jesus rose from the dead went out and planted churches and spread the gospel and the church was birthed. So these 24 elders are not literal people, they're angelic representations of the people of God. You following with me? These 24 elders are not connected to a one specific person. They are in this vision symbolic of all of God's people for all of the time that God has been covenant, cutting covenants with his people. That's these 24 elders. And he's told that they all have crowns on their heads, so they have in some sense some form of authority. They've been given some gift because that's how crowns are, crowns are symbolized in scripture. They, uh, they show some form of authority or they show some sense that they have been uh, given as a gift. These people have um, uh, overcome some sense uh, on earth and they have been crowned uh, with this crown. So you've got these 24 elders who are representatives of God's entire family and they're sitting on these ruling thrones and they have these crowns. Now for me, the most profound observation in this section so far in the throne room scene is that you've got a throne, a central rule, a central location of power, and the one on the throne is seated. And you've got around him 24 thrones representing God's people, and every one of them are seated. Now John just finished communicating these letters from Jesus and five out of seven churches weren't doing well. Two of them, had, Jesus had nothing good to say of, about them. Three of them, they were, they were doing some things good but had some areas to repent, and two of them, they were just suffering and they were doing what the Lord said, but they were in the uh, midst of persecution and tribulation. So five out of two, the odds that they, they weren't good, coming out of those letters, the sense is the church isn't doing so well. 
And at the time that John was writing this, we know that the emperors in Rome were persecuting Christians. They were feeding them to lions. They were setting them on fire for human candles at their dinner parties. Things, if you were a Christian, like things weren't good for you. And then we enter into the throne room scene. What is the posture of heaven while things on earth are falling apart? Everyone's seated. No one is stressing stressing out. No one is pacing up and down the aisle. It's not a war room. No one's strategizing on a whiteboard. What are we gonna do next? The enemy has taken ground. I'm not sure what we're gonna do next. He's got this area, but we've got this area. If we hold this ground, we, maybe we can you know, mount an offensive and take this ground back. That's not what's happening. What's happening in this throne room, the center of power over all the universe, is that everyone is seated. No one is freaking out. Everyone is at rest. Now, they don't stay seated for long, but this is the picture John starts with. Let's go to verse uh, five. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Okay, so everybody's seated but there's some noise going on. Everyone's relaxed, but there is some power emanating from this throne. There is lightning and thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. All right, just get in your mind this image. I want you to just close your eyes for a second and imagine what this looked like to be caught up in this doorway and to walk through this entrance from one reality and one realm into another and to be caught up in what you see. And what you see is the Ancient of Days on his throne and he's bright with brilliance and he's shining brighter than the noonday sun and he's surrounded by this this rainbow which is a symbol of a covenant. He's surrounded by these these thrones of, of these elders And then we see just beyond that throne, all of a sudden things start to rumble and there's this lightning and there's this thunder. Now, we live in Florida. As soon as as the first crack of lightning comes across the sky, what are we doing? We're running inside. Like, maybe you don't. Maybe you like playing it fast and loose, but not me. All right? If I'm outside, like... I'm always the tallest person everywhere. So I'm lightning rod number one. If I see lightning, I'm gone. You don't see me anymore. I'm out of the pool. I'm hiding in the house. I don't want to be struck by lightning. Thunder, like I like thunder. It helps me take naps, but I don't want to take a nap outside when it's thundering. These are all symbols that are true in most human hearts that you don't approach lightning and thunder. You don't come close to seven balls of fire that are just hovering before the throne. This is holy. You don't approach it. You don't act like, what's up, Jesus? High five. Like, we're not playing around. This, this isn't, like, this isn't slang time. This is a holy God who is unapproachable. This is who we're worshiping. This is what John sees. Now keep going. He goes in verse six. He says, before the throne, there was this sea of glass like crystal. So juxtaposition with this massive thunder and lightning, you've got this calm sea of glass, just like crystal right before the throne. And all around the throne, on each side of the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Ooh, that's weird. Right? Imagine a creature that's just got eyes everywhere. (laughs) Bottom of the feet, back of the knee, everywhere. The first living creature 
looked like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings. They were full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never ceased to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, this part of the vision is just dripping with imagery, and I want to run through it really quickly. Because each piece of this imagery is a database draw from the Old Testament. Jesus is communicating to John, I'm the same God that I always have been. Every vision, every moment, every scene that I gave all the way back to Exodus, back to Genesis, that's all me. I'm the same one. And so he starts with this imagery of thunder and lightning. And it communicates that this is a beautiful throne because it's shining bright with brilliance, but it's also surrounded with this rainbow. But within this beautiful brilliance and rainbow, there's also this thunder and lightning. It is great power, and it is connected to Exodus 19, 16, where, G, where, where, the, where God splits open the sky and show up, shows up at Mount Sinai to give Israel the covenant. And the moment this happens, this is happening not just in heaven or in a vision, this is happening literally on planet Earth, and everyone's just like, I don't want no part of that. How about Moses? You go up on the mountain, talk to God, come back and tell him, just tell us what he said. That way we don't have to go up that mountain that's all thundery and lightning and, and fire all around it. This is the imagery that Jesus is communicating to John in this vision. That moment of Sinai, looks like this throne room because that moment was heaven opening up and two realities were colliding. Then we've got the seven torches of blazing fire. And as we talked about in Revelation 1, these seven torches are symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is illuminating. It was represented in Zechariah 4.2 as this lamp stand that had these seven um, uh, uh, lamps at the top of the stand, and each one of them had these little flames of fire. But we're also told in Acts 2.3 that the Holy Spirit showed up in cloven tongues of fire resting on each person, uh, sim symbolizing that from this time forward, uh, human beings would be the lamp stands. You ever thought about that? That's why that imagery was in Acts. The idea that these cloven tongues of fire are resting on everybody's head, what is that about? Well, it's Hebrew Old Testament imagery that there was this lampstand in the Old Testament that provided light all around it, and now there's not a temple, there's a people. And the people are my lampstand. And when all the lampstands gather together, that local lampstand is a church. That's the fire imagery. It's, it's demonstrating that the Holy Spirit is resting on in his people. Then we see the sea of glass. Now we've covered this in the Psalms of Ascent series. We've covered this in Isaiah. In ancient Hebrew minds, oceans, seas, always communicated chaos. It was visually this representation of things that are out of control. Winds just blow up, storms blow out of nowhere, and you're in a little boat and it just overtakes you. It doesn't matter how much power you have or how big your boat is, the ocean can crush it and you sink to the bottom. So oceans have always been symbol, uh, symbols of, of chaos. And what John sees is not an ocean of chaos. What he sees is an ocean of a sea of glass. Jesus is communicating to John that I am the one who has conquered all chaos. In my throne room, if there's any storm, it's emanating from my throne, not the sea in front of my throne. 
Then we see these four living creatures that are representatives for all creation. We see them in Ezekiel 1.10 and 10.14, also in Isaiah 6.2. We see them a little bit different each time. Some of them have different numbers of wings. Some of them have just a little bit uh, different symbols of faces. But what we're seeing here are symbols on these creatures. Again, these are not literal, these aren't literally what they looked like. There is a chance that they may look like this, but we're not told this is exactly what they look like. We're told this is what they look like in the vision. And in the vision, they were, had wings all around them, which traditionally carry, uh, symbolize the swiftness to carry out God's will. That's why his creatures have wings. Wings communicate speed, but they're also covered in eyes. Eyes communicate wisdom. Eyes are the things that you need to see clearly. And the more you have, the more clearly you see. So these creatures, having a lion head, an ox head, a man head, an eagle, these are all created beings, and so these four living creatures are representatives of all creation on earth. In the same way that the 24 elders are representatives of God's people, these four living creatures are representatives of all creation. So what in heaven is all creation doing? When they have all eyes all around their head and they can see absolutely clearly and they're spinning swiftly around the throne of God, what are they beholding? They're beholding the majesty of God and they see clearly how holy God is and it, it, it elicits inside of them a worship song, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So this is interesting because what we see is representatives of all creation worshiping the one true God. Day and night, they never stop saying this worship song. All creation is affirming God's authority and they're crying out for it. Kind of like how Paul talks about in Romans 8.23 that all creation is groaning. This in the vision is a representation of all creation crying out that God is the only God. But this is what's fascinating about this. This scene is taking place in heaven, not on earth. So in heaven, representatives of all creation are worshiping the one true God, but on earth, the representatives of all creation, all creation are not worshiping God. So we've got an issue here. There are things that are true and currently taking place in heaven that are not true here on earth. So the question is, how do we get up there down here? Let's keep reading, go to verse nine. This is whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they start worshiping him who lives forever and ever. Look at what they do in worship. They cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. 
So now, not just the living creatures, all cre- representatives of all creation are bowing down and worshiping and singing this song holy. Now all the representatives of God are taking the cues from creation and they're not just singing, they're demonstrating outward symbols of this authority. Because these representatives of God have some given authority that was on loan to them from this throne. They have their thrones, they have their crowns, but what do the people of God choose to do with the authority given to them, they surrender it at the throne of the one who gave the true authority. The representatives of God's people get off of their thrones and they cast their crowns before the king. This act of worship demonstrates a willingness to lay down their own personal authority. And since these are representatives of God's people, there is a connection from what's happening in heaven that needs to take place here on earth. This is why we gather as a church every week for worship. Because in the act of you getting off of your own personal throne, you come into a place with other believers and you collectively, as a group of God's people, say, I surrender any authority that he has given me as a creation and I surrender it back to the creator. See, when we get together and we worship, it's not just us singing songs with words on the screen. It's not just trying to get that emotional, you know, stirred up and just feel something in the moment. That's not the purpose of what we're doing when we gather. What we're doing when we gather is mirroring what's transpiring in heaven as the representatives of God's people. And we are literally taking the crowns off of our head. We're taking our own authority. We're taking our own desires. We're taking our own realms of influence. And we are putting them at the feet of God in worship. And we are saying, not my way, but your way. I am not worthy. That's why you start to see some outward expressions of worship because in heaven, these guys are literally getting off of their thrones and casting down their crowns. And here on earth, you see it transpiring in the lives of the people. Sometimes you'll see people during worship, they'll step out of their seat and they'll just get down on their knees. Why do people do that? Because it's a mirror of what worship looks like in heaven. Why are people raising their hands? Why do they seem to be overcome with emotion? Why the tears? Why the loud singing? Can't we all just sit here quietly and just enjoy the song? No, because that's not why we're here. If you want to sit quietly and enjoy a song, put one out in the car on the way here. The reason why there are outward expressions and there is no, there's no protocol for how it's supposed to look because it looks different for everybody because everybody's crown looks different but you will see some outward expressions during worship because it is a reflection of what worship really looks like from the throne room. It's biblical. There is a sense that God's people become so overwhelmed with what they behold when they view the throne of God that any cheap little Playmobil crown that they have on their head just doesn't stand in the presence of the king. And this tiny little cardboard throne that we've been crafting that impresses everybody but not him, when we get in his presence, it the, how ri- the ridiculousness of it starts to seep in and we are overwhelmed with emotions because we think that we are somebody sitting on this cardboard throne, but when we behold the real throne with these flashes of lightning, we feel about this big and we start crying and we fall down 
and we raise our hands and we get on our knees because there needs to be in the human heart some response to the fact that you have captured the wholeness of who God is and the littleness of who you are. There's a small glimpse of that when you step outside at night and you look at the stars or when you go to the beach and you just, you you can't do this at Panama City because there's just people everywhere, but if you find a beach where there's no people and you just stand early in the morning with no one around and you're just overwhelmed at how large this thing is and how little you are, that is just a small taste of what John is trying to communicate and what he sees these elders doing when they cast their crowns before the throne. All creation knows it. They're doing it constantly. But as the people of God see creation doing it, their response is, I I gotta do more than just sing a song. I've gotta surrender the authority he's given me and given it back to him for his purposes. Because I don't have a job so that I get paid and, and I can feed my family. I have a job because God has given me the authority to actually have this job and I need to use it for his glory and not my own personal gain. I don't use the resources he has given me to buy duct tape to keep building my cardboard throne. I use resources he has given me in order to further his throne and his kingdom. So as I said a moment ago, we have not just creation, but we have all of the representatives of God's creation. And what are they doing? They're all bowing down in worship. Now what you see in this throne room scene is everything that God has created giving worship back to the creator. Creation isn't worshiping itself. It's worshiping the creator. And this is happening in heaven in this vision And the cry is, how do we get this down here? This is pretty good. Anybody wanna argue that this isn't good? This is good stuff. This is nice to have all creation, everything that's ever been created, gives its heart and and song back to the creator. That's pretty good stuff. To live in a world that's not cursed with sin, but everything in it, literally even the the roses that bloom, they're, they're proclaiming the glory of God. That's good stuff. And the human beings do it too. You get a little taste of this at Christmas time when you start walking into a department store and they're playing our songs. You know, they're singing about our king. They don't know it, they don't, they're not paying attention to it, but, but they're doing it. Like take that and multiply it times a billion and that's what it's like to walk this, what it would be like to walk this earth when, with all creation affirming and worshiping and giving honor to the God who created them. So this is, so four is an expectation. It's a question. It's a vision that begs a response. God, this is so amazing. How do we get this down here? I want that here. I want all creation singing your songs. I want all God's people fixing their eyes on you and not the color of the carpet or who sang some special or how much money we took up in the offering, or what our building looks like, or whether the plants are alive or dead. I'm tired of God's people being consumed with things that don't matter. I want God's people fixed on you and casting their crowns and getting off their thrones. How do we get that up here? How do we get that up here, down here? How do we do it? Five answers to that question. Go to Revelation chapter five, verse one. This is then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel 
proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And and I began to weep. I wept loudly because nobody was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So John is looking towards the throne and he sees in the right hand of God a scroll. Now this is most likely an Old Testament database that goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 12, verse four. When God, Jesus, and an angel is giving Daniel an understanding of the things that will happen at the end times. And he tells Daniel after all these visions, I want you to take what I gave you and I want you to seal it up in a book. The, the Hebrew word there is not actually, or the Aramaic word is not really book, it's scroll. In some translations it said book, but it's scroll. I want you to take what I gave you and I want you to seal it up in a scroll. That scroll isn't mentioned again until I think right here. This scroll has been in the Father's right hand and this scroll contains God's divine plan for the end of time. Everything that God communicated to Daniel has been written on this scroll and now it's been sealed. We don't talk about it, we don't understand it until the right time. When is the right time? The right time is right now. The right time is right now. The time right now is we gotta find somebody who is ready to break these seals and open this thing and let's start letting God's end time plan transpire. Let's let heaven invade earth. How do we get what's up there, down here? All of that is wrapped up in this scroll. It's all right here written out. This is God's plan for the end of history. This is how we get up there, down here, and we put an end to everything taking place down here. Now what we see here is John knowing, because he just wrote these seven letters, that things aren't good. His brothers and sisters are dying of persecution. They're literally being killed. Things are not good in the church. But not only are they not good because the outside world is influencing the church uh, through persecution, the outside world is also influencing the church through false teaching. The tentacles of the, of the evil one have started to creep into the church and they're wrapping themselves around the pastor and manipulating what he talks about. They're sliding up and down the pews and wrapping around the people's feet and they're invading and infiltrating and manipulating the way that the people think. And this false teaching is starting to get into the church and the church is battling that. So John is thinking, man, things aren't good. We need what's going on in this scene down here. How do we get it? And God says, I've got a plan for how we get it. I gave Daniel and no one was ready to read it. But now I gotta find somebody who is because I want somebody to enact my plan. I want somebody to bring an end to all of these tentacles and this darkness and this persecution. I want my people to stop dying. We need to bring an end to everything that's been taking place. I've got a plan. Well, who in the world can read the plan? Who can break the seals and do God's will and enact this plan? And everyone's looking around like, who can do this? And, and we got four living creatures. You got eyes everywhere. None of y'all can do it? And they're like, no, no, holy, 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 holy. <laughs> but you guys can't, no? None of you, you got 24 of you elders sitting around. Nobody, nobody, none of y'all can do it? 
Nobody was found. And John starts weeping because it looks like there's no end to the madness. If no one can be found to enact God's plan to take the scroll and break the seals, then there's no hope for any of us. There's no hope for the persecuting churches. It's just going to go on forever. There's no hope for all humanity. There's no hope that things are ever going to get better. Sickness, disease, death, it's all just going to get worse and worse and worse. There's no hope. And so John starts to weep. But then we see in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and right among the elders, I turned and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, and it had seven horns and seven eyes. And those seven eyes are the seven spirits of God that are sent unto all the earth. It's the Holy Spirit again. And the lamb, this little bitty lamb, this tiny little lamb that had a scar from being slain. It's weird, it's got seven horns and seven eyes, but this tiny little lamb, he walks up to the throne. Verse seven, he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. What, are you, what do you imagine those prayers in those bowls were? It's the prayers that somebody would be found worthy to end all of the suffering. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There it is. Because of what the Lamb is able to do, this scene in heaven will become a reality on earth. Now let's break this apart a little bit, because hallelujah, in the midst of John crying that no one was found worthy, there was one who was found worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. There's only one issue. The lion isn't a lion. The lion is a lamb. In order to gain the authority, the right to take this scroll from the right hand of the Father, the lion couldn't be a lion. The lion had to be a lamb. The lion had to leave that authority and that power. He had to just, he had to make the choice to be a lamb while walking on the earth. And every moment that he was confronted like, just think of the Garden of Gethsemane. When all of these Roman soldiers come to arrest him, the lion could have pounced at any moment, but the lion made a choice to be a lamb at that moment. See, no one's arresting Jesus unless Jesus allows himself to be arrested. No one is conquering the lion because the lion is simply choosing to be a lamb. Yeah. 
The lion is laying down his power and saying, I'm not going to use it at this moment. I'm going to allow you to overtake me because there are greater purposes that need to be fulfilled. I'm not saying that God left his power and that at any point he walked the earth, he wasn't fully God. I'm saying that the lion made a choice to be a lamb every moment he walked on earth. He was a lion, but he chose to be a lamb and that lamb was slaughtered. And so what we see here is that this lamb that was slaughtered and rose back from the dead, it had a scar like it was killed, but now it's not dead, it's alive. It had seven horns. Horns are always symbolic of authority. Eyes are always symbolic of wisdom. Seven is the perfect completed number. And so what you have is this symbol, this lamb who holds all authority and can see with perfect wisdom and vision has made the decision to lay his life down for his people. That has given him the right to be the only being for all eternity who is worthy enough to take the scroll. Now this scene that we're seeing here was played out earlier in Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 through 14. Daniel just didn't understand it. We're told that he sees a vision of the ancient days coming in and taking seat and the courts were set and the books were open. And the next scene is we see one like the son of man coming in and the ancient of days gives the son of man authority over all people, all tribes, all nations, all languages. John is replaying the same scene that Daniel saw over 500 years before. And the point of it retelling it in this way is to communicate to God's people that the inheritance that the lamb received came through humility and submission, not through power and aggression. So here we have the one who can open the scroll. The lamb holds the end time scroll. The lamb holds the one, uh, holds the scroll with the seals that, in, that has God's plan to end all of, uh, all of human history. And this release comes because the lamb was worthy by laying itself down. So here's what we have in five. Four ends with this question, how do we get heaven on earth? And five answers that question, we get heaven on earth through the lamb. The lamb conquers, the lamb is the one who can now start to enact God's plan to bring up there, down here, and to end all of the suffering, the sickness, the death, the curses. It was inaugurated at the very beginning when Jesus came the first time and it will be completely fulfilled and understood the second time he comes and that second coming is, will be discussed in these visions. But for here and now, I want you to look at what happens in 11 through 14. Remember what I said at the very beginning of the message series that time jumps around and we go zoomed in and then we go wide? You're about to see that, so just buckle up. Verse 11 says, then I looked. So he just saw the lamb scene and then he looked and the scene changed, it went wide. You've got in the lamb scene, you've got the, the, uh, the representatives of all creation, they're worshiping the lamb, you've got all the elders worshiping the lamb, but then the scene changes and it goes wide. Verse 11, it says, then I looked 
And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. Bam, we just went super wide. Because now we don't just see the living creatures and the elders, we see all of the angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands and thousands and all of these angels. So now all of heaven is proclaiming the song of the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But it doesn't end there. We went wide, now we're seeing all of heaven, but now we're gonna jump forward in history and we're gonna, we're gonna go as wide as we possibly can and Jesus is gonna show John a view of all creation when the, when the final plan of the scroll has been released and God's redemptive plan of history has finally been accomplished and that throne room scene isn't reserved for just the throne room, it's a reality over the entire heavens and the earth. Look at verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped so following this vision of a throne room scene that cultivated inside of us desire to want to see it everywhere, Jesus shows John that once the lamb takes these, this scroll and starts breaking these seals, God's redemptive plan will start uh, will go beyond just the redemptive work of Jesus. He's going to bring the redemptive work to a close and he's going to end history. So literally this scroll contains God's plan for, for the end of time breaking the seals on the scroll, has responses of things that are gonna take place down on earth. We'll talk about that next week when we get into chapter six. But what we see is that when the lamb is done breaking all these seals, when everything in this scroll has been accomplished, on the other side of it, every, every cell of every being of every creature on planet earth, in heaven, on, on earth and in heaven, will be declaring the glory of the Lord. Now here's the question for you. If that's the end game, if the majesty of Jesus throughout the entire earth is the end goal, what would you do to get there? What would you persevere through? What would you, what would you suffer through? What would you, what would you worship through? What would you partake in? What would God's people do in order to get to God's plan coming to full fruition? Because what's gonna happen is as the lamb starts breaking those seals, it's gonna have impacts here on earth, and those impacts are gonna, they're gonna impact mankind. So here's what, the, here's what the offer is. You want the whole earth redeemed? There's going to have to be a period of tribulation going through to get there because this earth is polluted and it has to be punished and cleaned. If that's the end goal, if that's what we want, we will get there but there are some things that need to transpire first and they're demonstrated through the breaking of these seals. So we're given this interesting throne room scene and we're presented with what worship looks like in heaven and the expectation that when the lamb has fully accomplished God's plans, the, these realities and this worship style will, trans, will transpire down here on earth. So up there will take place down here. So we're given these two massive scenes. This is what heaven wor worship looks like, and this is what earth worship will look like. 
and earth worship will mirror heaven worship. The question before you today is, do you want to wait until it happens or do you want to start doing it right now? Are we all just going to sit around our hands and say, won't it be great on that glorious day, brother? Oh man, I can't wait. What are you waiting for? Why are you waiting? You're given a blueprint for what worship looks like now, and it will spread through the entire earth, but why is it not spreading in your heart first? Why is it not real in your home first? Why is it not real in his churches first? Are we really sitting around waiting for him to do the next thing when we have been given a blueprint for what the next thing looks like? Why don't we just start practicing and doing it now? So here's what I want for you before we leave today. I want to present before you just a few questions to consider because I think the best way to wrestle with what we see is to ask ourselves some questions about what we saw. So here's what I wrote down. Can we walk through the same door as John and see the heavenly perspective that he saw? Or are you so comfortable laying in your sleepy, lazy bed that walking through a door seems too much? Are you ready to get out, to wake up, to take this thing with Jesus seriously and walk through the door to get a new perspective on your life and this world, or are you comfortable letting some news source or some social media influencer tell you how, how you're supposed to think about things? How can we start adopting the worship practices of heaven in our normal daily lives? If this is what we're presented, how can we respond to this in our normal life? And what thrones can we get up from or what crowns can we take off of our head to cast down before Jesus in worship and adoration? How does Christ's example of becoming a lamb shape our choices today? What does it look like to surrender your power and your authority and not choose might and power to get your way but to choose the way of the lamb and walk in humility? to swallow your last words so that you don't put someone in their place, but you allow the Holy Spirit to do the work for you. How can these chapters, this is the last one, how can these chapters shape our prayer lives and live with eternity in mind? And this is the last thought. When the elders bowed down in worship, they didn't just bring worship, they brought prayer. And there is a holy connection between praising and singing and affirming the God of the universe and mixing that with prayers to the God of the universe to do things here down on earth. And so these are the kind of questions, and there's probably more, and hopefully the Holy Spirit has started stirring in your heart some of these questions, but what I want you leaving today with is a vision of what heaven worship looks like with the expectation that I want that in my life and he'll do it, he promises he'll do it when he returns, but I don't wanna wait. I don't wanna wait till he returns, I want it now. I want to start casting my crowns, getting off of my throne. I want to see what I just saw in my house, in my car, in my heart, in my bed, in my prayer time, in my church services. I want this reality every Sunday when we gather. I want this reality in the home group that I attend. I want this reality when I'm going to Walmart, because I need it. I need this reality everywhere I go. Anything less than this 
It just doesn't cut it anymore. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.